Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. Still, we're still standing. We're still the only horror podcast that I'm aware of that reviews horror films with five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. I say reviews. We have pretty enlightening and, and comprehensive discussions about them. I think uh, I think you're going to if this is your first show. I mean, you chose a weird movie to come in on and I got to respect you for that. But otherwise, you know, you'll you'll get the format pretty quickly. It's not that tricky. I am joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Matt Zanotto, Matt with the good hair. How you doing, buddy? The hair is still good, so we are doing well. Uh, it is also a very important day here, living in California and Los Angeles. We voted no. Hopefully, when this episode airs, we'll be in a good situation over here. <laughs> Please don't tempt the universe like that, Matthew. You should know better than that. Uh well, nobody will hear this except for the three of us. So, it, like, we didn't we didn't tempt fate. We didn't change any <laughs> kind of path. No sliding doors situation is happening right now. I don't think. Um, no, I said three I of us. I don't think is so. That... Did, why, did you want me to answer that? I'm like, no, we didn't. I don't think. No, no, you're fine. Um, I said three of us earlier. Does that mean we have a guest? And if so, who are they, Donato? Imagine if we didn't. Imagine if this was the episode <laughs> we just totally lied about having a guest. But no, this is not. We do have a guest. I am bringing in my dear friend from the film festival circuit that I have just continuously run into year after year, whether we knew we were going to be at the same festival or not. Like, Fantastic Fest, we always knew. But then I remember Overlook one year literally walking down like Bourbon Street, and I'm like, I know that person. <laughs> so <laughs> on, on that note, I'm going to bring in Dee Crimmins. You have read her work at places like Rue Morgue. Seville Weekly, That Shelf, and many, many others. Again, you have probably seen her at every festival under the sun. Didi, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Like, this is like substituting my intro- my running into you randomly in like cities that neither of us live in. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I like how this podcast in the pandemic has just become me reconnecting with people I haven't seen at <laughs> festivals in like a year and a half. Like, that is my function for this. I'm pretty comfortable with you using this as a coping mechanism. I think I'm pretty on the record about that. <laughs> um, Didi, I have to say it's really exciting to have you on the show, not least of which because I am a subscriber to Rue Morgue. And Yay. I'm always, I think it's always great whenever I pop open my most recent issue and see your name in there. So Aww. it's very, very cool. We have a lot of people to come on. We've had people that come on that have made films and written about films. But the list of folks that we've had come on the show that I can actually see their name in print I feel is is kind of small these days. So that sets you a bit apart in my book. It's how like I can show my parents that my writing career is real. Because <laughs> I can actually. No, I hope they subscribe too. Oh, no. Sometimes I'll buy them a copy and be like, look, you can get this at Barnes & Noble. I assure you it's a thing. Oh, that's great. I do the uh, kill list in Fangoria every year in the print issue. And I tried to have my mom read it one time and she got like one entry into me describing the gnarliest kills of the year. And she just looked at me again, just the running joke of like, can't you just write something nice for once? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, look at what look at what I've done. I'm so proud of this. And she's reading all these grotesque things. I tried to take an Instagram like video of it. And she looked at me she's like, no, don't you dare post that anywhere. I don't want to know people like I don't want people to know I've read this thing. <laughs> oh, Donato, your parents still love you, even if they don't even begin to understand what it is you do for fun and for work. Um, but we're not, we're not here to unpack your psychological damage, my friend. We're here to talk about Dee Dee and her career. So let's start kind of in the place that we usually do, and which is always my favorite question to ask, is let's start at the beginning. Um, talk to us a little bit about how your love of horror began, what that first movie was, that first formative experience, the first time you remember engaging with a horror movie and being like, oh yeah, I'm, this is this is it for me. Sure. So you're here to 
unpack my psychological damage, but not to not Yeah, those. as okay, a guest. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. This is really good free therapy for me. Um, I, I don't know. I, li- I always find that I have a weird moment of not being able to bond with other horror fans because I was raised in a genre household. Um, I grew up going to science fiction conventions since before I could walk. I was a kid in tow. Like I, my mother is one of the editors for the New York Review of Science Fiction. Um, so like always was, had a mom who like had a side gig that was just something she loved to do and may or may not have paid anything. Um, so I grew up in a house where there were no, there was no taboo. There were no boundaries. There was no, um, oh, you shouldn't watch this. It's like universal horrors were, were all around us all the time. Like I knew horror hosts in person, things like that. So there's a bit of that thing. There was no subversion. There was no just like, oh, I have to sneak this. Like my parents say I can't watch rated R things. It was like, no, mm-hmm. maybe you can't show Rocky Horror Picture Show at your ninth grade birthday party. Like we need to reel this back because the other kids' parents aren't ready for it, even though I'd seen it like a dozen times. So I know that's not horror, but still like just to show that there were my parents just let me watch whatever. Um, there were certain films that I saw probably sooner than I should have. Like I saw Candyman right when I came out and I was like 11 or something. Like it was like a little early for me. And that was a little more sophisticated than a lot of the horror films I had seen up until that point. So that freaked me out. Um, and there were certainly like horrific scenes and non-horror films that really got to me. So like the scene in Labyrinth where like the orange guys tear off each other's heads, like that just terrified me. And Mm. of course, like large marge and peewee so and actually now that i think of it, i have tattoos about those films so that says something but um yeah yeah i just always it was never a question whether or not i would love horror i guess i kind of launched myself into it a little bit more specifically in college when i realized you could study film and that people would give you you could pay them and they'll give you credits and a diploma if you talk about movies a lot just in a very structured way so I got into film kind of from like an academic angle in that way. So, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious because you're, I, I don't think it's fair to say that you missed anything. We've, people have come, come to horror when they come to horror. Mm-hmm. There's a thousand different entry points. It's a beautiful thing about the genre, but you mentioned having conversations with folks about your horror origins and there being a bit of a disconnect. Do you feel like that's, do you feel like they're missing something? Do you feel like you're missing something when you have those conversations about, you know, those first couple of titles and kind of what it was like growing up? Like, what is it about, what is it about that disconnect? Do you walk away being like, oh, I wish my household had been a little bit more oppressed so I could have had that taboo experience? Yeah, a little bit. It's like, I want, like, I don't have that whole, like, oh, it's a hidden gem and I have to hide it and it's special for just me. Or like, oh, I'm pissing off my parents and I love Freddy Krueger. Like, none of that was a thing. Like, I didn't have that element of discovering it on my own and making it my own it was just kind of like what I was raised with now granted like my mom in the world of the genre my mom is much more heavily into sci-fi than I am but she does like horror my sister who I'm also close with she's a little bit more into fantasy than I am but she still likes horror and sci-fi but um so we're like all genre kids but it wasn't like yeah I kind of hear people like very specific they're like oh my god I wasn't allowed to see this film and I saw it and it was amazing and I couldn't tell my parents about it and I had to like hide under my covers like I had none of that I don't think you necessarily like to echo what Monagle said you didn't miss anything (laughs) because as somebody who had the complete opposite upbringing and the the complete entry point into horror I came in in college and I came in full force in college it wasn't a I had no structure at that point I had no foundation I had to like kind of start later than I probably wanted to and should have and what that meant is I got full force thrown into everything I could kind of 
get my hands on from the past, but I didn't have that much time to go back and really learn on the classics and have someone teach me everything I needed to and then kind of hit the ground running later on. So I still have these like big gaps of I, I movies I wish people showed me growing up and like whether that was a brother or sister that I never had or like the parents who didn't like her at all. I feel like I missed out a large part on that steady foundation to build off of when I got to college versus me just looking around going like kid in the candy store. Where the fuck do I start? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have a very specific memory of my mom dropping me and two friends off to go seeing um, Wes Craven's New Nightmare in the theater. And like, it didn't occur to her to come in with us because we are definitely not 17. She was just like, what, you're seeing a movie? Like, it just, she kind of forgot that that was a thing. And so we ended up buying tickets to go see Little Giants and then sneaking into New Nightmare, of course. But we still saw the movie and then we left. I was like, mom, they wouldn't sell us tickets. She's like, huh, I wonder why. I'm like, because we're kids? Like... And then it was just like, nice. it, it didn't even occur to her, like, which, you know, parenting skills aside, it was just like not a non-issue. There weren't barriers in other ways, which you're right. I mean, it kind of looking back, it sounds cool, but it's also kind of like, I don't know. There's no like thrill of discovery. So I think that may be why I approach it like in a little bit. Well, because besides the fact that it, like I studied in school twice over, like I didn't come to it for being like, it was never an othered thing. Like we would go to the movies mm -hmm. and we'd see whatever we watched a lot of movies all the time so it was like it wasn't like oh my god it's horror it was just kind of like oh we're seeing either full monty or you know scream again like it was there weren't any lines between it yeah and i think hearing you say that one of the things that stands out is so many people they're they're so many horror fans their journey and their love of horror is sort of tied to this emotional development thing too right like they see stuff too young um, it traumatizes them in some way. You know, I have tremors too, unfortunately, which we've talked about on the show before. Donato has child's plays like <laughs> movies that we saw when we shouldn't have and kind of fucked us up a little bit. Um, but I think part of the narrative of that is like the, the appropriating that fear, you know, being able to kind of on your own terms, go back and be like, all right, no, like uh, this scared me, but I'm going to, I'm going to grapple with that. I'm going to come out on the other side. And so I think that the, it's the same thing of kind of like the roller coaster ride, right? Like element of where like you get on a roller coaster and like you're scared and you're falling, but it's also sort of fun. And at beforehand, you're like, I didn't want to do that. And afterhand, you get a, had a good time. But I think the trade-off for you is that you were able to probably engage with this stuff at, at, a, at a depth and a scope um, that most young horror fans weren't. Like you were, because you weren't like playing chicken with your VHS copy of Evil Dead in the way that a lot of us were, you know, you were able to immerse yourself in a really cool genre at a really young age and form some of these like lifelong memories and connections that like Donato said, the rest of us are, were playing catch up with and continue to play catch up with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. Um, and it's funny because like, as I'm talking about this and then hearing you to reflect back on me, like, it's funny because we were such a genre household. We were like defined by genre, but because of that genre almost didn't matter, which is a weird mm. thing to acknowledge and try and process for the first time. Thanks for the free therapy guys. Um, because it's like, we like literally like I've been going to science fiction conventions my entire life. Like I've seen like, you know, amazing stuff. That's really cool. And seen incredible people speak. And it's just so incredible. It's like, I don't know, just, Oh, that's what Connie Willis looks like. Cause that's what Connie Willis looks like. Like I can recognize these people walking around um yeah it, i mean that is in a certain degree a very big privilege but it's just like i don't know so many times people talk about like their horror origin and i do kind of want that whole like mom could you have just yeah. told me i couldn't read this one stephen king book like just give me that for my upbringing have me give me something to talk about on a podcast 40 years later but no you never you never got to have your badass rebellion moment like you were just no. gifted everything in a sense and you were kind of like all right like this is all fine which is it, again it does sound so nice from my point of view yeah 
but yeah, I, I, from your point of view, you never had that act out moment. You never had that one story that stands out because otherwise you were just living your life. Yeah. Yeah. And like my sister was, we went, we were from a very, very small town. My sister was like the goth of the town. And I was like the kid with purple hair and who wore a lot of tie dye and like a dog collar and stuff. And my mom loved that we were the weirdos. And like, I still think my mom's upset that I'm so straight, like, because it could have been like another facet of her just having like weirdo, not weirdo kids, you know what I mean? Just like children that would, you know, upset the neighbors in a fun way for her. So, well, let's, um, I, you're, it's a fascinating experience and one that I would <laughs> love to talk about more, but I don't want you to be defined by what horror movies you, you did get to watch as a kid. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that college experience that you mentioned earlier. Um, Cause you know, that was for me, that was a similar kind of experience is like film was a hobby. It was the thing that kind of existed around you. And like you could write a review or something. And that was cool when you were in like high school or, or whatever the equivalent was about like, you know, publishing something with just for friends or creating a zine. Um, but it was really, you know, I took a French cinema class and I was like, oh, there's like smartness to this. Like there's there's things I can do that go above and beyond that. So what elements is you kind of realized that film was this thing that you could approach critically and actually study from like an academic standpoint? What elements of film, what aspects of, of film studies were you drawn to the most? What kind of made that that switch flip for you? Sure. I think for me at the time, I'd started out college as a physics major and I did two years of physics major. And it kind of got to the point where it was like, okay, you need to choose a focus within physics in order to figure out what kind of engineer you're going to be. I'm like, I don't want to be an engineer. Looking back, I probably would have loved being an engineer. But at the time, that just wasn't something that was on my radar. And I just liked studying physics. And I realized like I needed to do something else. So of course, then I went into a different pursuit that actually has like no end game here. Um, For me, the thing about film studies is I loved how analytical I could be. Like I could pick something apart not just in terms like in eighth grade like I really like getting down and dirty with like analyzing a poem down to the punctuation like saying like well this one is above that like E.E. Cummings and I were like tight because like there was just so much visually that you could do in terms of structuring and it's also intentional it's a created world it's not the real world like if a woman's wearing a dress you bought a red dress to put on this woman why there are like different um insinuations with that sort of thing like i loved being able to craft being able to break down what was crafted there whether or not it's intentional by the director i you know i don't give two shits but um being able that's to, of the artist yeah for sure yeah being able to do that in a critical way and just kind of spout off about stuff and have that somehow be college credit like are you kidding me so the first um film studies course i took it was um oh it was called genre and it was just like there were different genres that we studied and that one was um oh it was uh horror western and melodrama all in one course and we did like you know mini units on them each and i was just like seeing film in a really critical way like that kind of seems like you had the same thing where it's just like oh my god this makes sense and i can make categories and i can make definitions and i can approach them in certain ways like i always say that they're kind of like have you ever done like theater lighting like if you have like something that's like a wallpapered wall depending on which film you put over the lens it changes what you see but the wall never changes like you can't change the wall you can just see what's peeking out behind there and I kind of think of film studies like that and started to see it like that so it's like you could do a postmodern analysis on a film that was like I don't know had no intention of being postmodern but you could kind of pull things out there that were happening what you can be totally wrong in film analysis of course but it's just it was interesting to me that I could really flux flex my brain and apply it to something I was actually really interested in 
Yeah. And the beauty of that is that these are, I mean, to your point, these are living documents, right? Like these, this film, some of the films we talk about as film critics are a century old at this point, mm-hmm. but we can still go back to them and our interpretation of them can change with an increased understanding of the history and the historical context with, within which they were produced, but also just sort of the people that come to it and the perspectives that they have to offer. It's, it's amazing to me. There's nothing more fun than I think sitting down and talking about a film with somebody because just that process of talking about your ideas hearing somebody relay your ideas back to you or interpret your ideas and then responding to that, like a five minute conversation. And I come out of it with a completely different place for a two hour movie that I just watched, but just a little bit of applying that analysis and applying that conversation about it. And suddenly you're thinking about stuff in a whole new way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's intox- it is intoxicating. Like it's, it's so much, hopefully that's why we all do what we do because that's the best part of film criticism for yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. And then I did, I end up going on to get my master's in film theory as well. So, because I was just like, you know what, school, what's great? School, because you get to avoid the real world and you get to work retail and it mm-hmm. seems fine. Um, not that re- working retail isn't fine, but at the time I felt the need to, I wanted to go to grad school, so I did. So I went to grad school for film theory and that really, being able to do a master's thesis and really, you know, take like a year and a half and study what I wanted to study for that long and have really incredible thesis advisor kind of guide me through it. Like I'd go and talk to him and be like, I kind of need a source that says this like and he's like oh you got to go find this one guy and then I'd find like a stack of 10 books of this one guy who I wholeheartedly disagreed with but led me up down other good paths so that was incredibly satisfying and that I just got to really dig my heels in so when I I worked on my MA thesis I was I would like I would lock myself in the library for 10 hours at a time and like I would look up and six hours had gone by and I'd be like, oh, okay, like my day's almost over. But it's just like, it's a, it's a it, it was a focus and an environment that I don't think I'll ever be able to recreate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think my film studies course almost drove me away from doing any of that oh. <laughs> because I, I was not film major. As I said in the podcast, I'm a business major. I've had my business day job since college, but absolutely had the opportunity to take a intro to film studies course at Hofstra. And all of my friends were telling me which like professors to take. And they all talked about seeing Jaws and aliens and, you know, their intro courses were meant to bring people into a more, you know, you're going to start writing about film and think about film in a different way, but we're going to use the movies that we know you're going to enjoy. And I got this one professor who was a new guy and he was this like hipster dude from Brooklyn and it was his first year teaching and he showed us mm. none of the, the like popular films. He showed us nothing like any of the other classes got to see. And I ended up watching you know, like movies that I did enjoy and did like, but like uh, Schenectady, New York, uh, going down the list of things that were, I'm going to say a higher level for where I was at the time of my appreciation of cinema. And I was just so out of it. Like I wanted to use movies like Alien to help me understand and like build a, a basis more to be that film critic, that film person. And he just like went headfirst into movies. I didn't really care about at the, at the time. And I, <laughs> I got in trouble once cause I, I slept through an entire movie. Like literally just, it just put me to sleep. It was I, bad experience, just bad experience, wrong teacher, wrong everything, but turned out. Okay. Oh man. Which movie did you fall asleep during? Do you remember? I am totally blanking. It was a black and white film uh, that was lesser seen and he showed it to us because he's like no one talks about this and everyone should so i'm going to tell you that this movie is amazing and you're going to watch it because i'm saying it's amazing and yeah that was fun isn't that the point of this podcast (laughs) we've gotten better at this 
Yes, exactly. So that is the funny come around point where literally the point of this podcast is the thing that almost drove me away over. We're talking over a decade ago. I, I am I am a youthful look, but my my age is there. Oh, man. I've told this story, too, I think. But when I was um, when I 18 years old and in college to going into a freshman like communication class, because um, that's what my degree was in before I went back to school. Um, I announced very confidently to my advisor who had become and remains kind of my mentor um, that I didn't think there was any value in movies made night before 1980. So the right person. Oh yeah. Like total shithead 18 year old kind of thing. I was just like, you know, I'm sure they're good in quality, but I, you know, they're just not for me. Um, so like it, it, it does make a difference. Dita, you mentioned having a really good advisor, especially throughout the, the MA program. Donato, you talked about having a really bad faculty member. <laughs> I do think that that if you're if you're interested, if you're somebody that's starting to dabble a little bit with film is more than just something you talk about over beers with your friends, like that first person that either encourages or discourages you can make a huge difference. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's like in terms of academia, like so few film critics have a degree in film theory like it's not a common thing this is like and I feel bad sometimes when young young you know kids are like oh how do you get start writing I'm like don't and I'm not saying don't be like me I'm saying you don't have to be like me because if I start saying like well I have my two you know two degrees including a master's degree in film theory they're like what I'm like no 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 no, no, no. Just find movies you like and find figure out why you like them and start there. Well, I want to uh, I want to talk about about how you made the leap into writing too, because mm. I think one thing that that I've always felt reading your writing and I've read your writing now for a couple of years um, is is you really do have a sense. There's a sense of accessibility, right? Like you're not trying to talk over your audience. You really are writing all of your pieces with the notion, or at least as a reader, it comes across with the notion that this could be the first time that somebody is like, oh, I want to talk, like, I want to engage with this movie a bit more critically. I want to read a review. Like every opportunity, every touch point you have is an opportunity to get somebody hooked in horror. Um, and that comes across, at least to me as a reader on the page. So I'm curious coming out of grad school and, and you know, I'm sure you were doing a little bit of writing even then, um, even before then on the side, when did you start to really find yourself getting some traction as a film critic and thinking this is something that I, I actually wanted to do? Oh, wow. well, first of all, thank you for that. Like I do try and approach my writing as like, I'm sitting down with a friend and explaining to them whether or not they should watch this movie or whether or not they should care about it or something. So thank you. That's a very big compliment. I'm going to take that with me. Um, but no, in terms of writing, if you can believe it. So I was just doing academic writing, finishing my thesis in grad school. I was working at a bookstore to, you know, pay the bills and whatnot um and inex i don't want to say inexplicably whenever i say this it seems it feels less dumb each time i bring this up um i one of the people i was working with at the bookstore um happened to run a literary journal and he was looking at people to review books and i don't know if you remember like when pride and prejudice and zombies came out and it was just a book it was like this whole explosion of zombie novels and novelizations I happened to be working on my master's thesis, which was on George Romero. And knowing this guy, he's like, I need someone to start reviewing all these zombie books. Can you do it? And I was like, sure. So I actually started reviewing books before movies, which was weird at the time because I was so in my head, like about grad school. I was like, I don't want to review books because I don't care if they're, I don't want to review movies because I don't care if they're good or not. Like, I really don't like, mm -hmm. on a certain, like I kind of do now because it's my job. But at the time I was just like, is this important? What, you know, historical things is it pulling in how's it accessing art history and at, so i didn't really care to evaluate things because i just knew what i liked and i didn't quite know why and wanted to think about it because it never entered into the equation of any of my academic writing 
but books, I can be like, well, this is boring as hell, or like, this is really reductive. And again, I was working at a bookstore. I was raised in a bookie household. Like I felt like that was more up my alley. So I started reviewing, um, doing long form book reviews, which are at least 2000 words each of all these really kind of crappy zombie novels that were coming out, like just two a week for like a couple years there. And then when um, Zombieland came out, and that was kind of like at least the very wide release, you know, post New Dawn of the Dead um, thing that was coming out that wasn't a remake. And my editor was like, would you want to review this movie? And I was like, yeah, sure. So again, like my first movie review was a 2000 word essay on this movie, Zombieland for a literary page. So and then after that, I reviewed a couple mo- movies for them here and there. I wasn't really looking to be a critic in the slightest because I was, you know, finishing my thesis. I wanted to go on to get my PhD. And then I started hanging out with some people in Boston who are like in the horror community. Actually, Mike Snoonian, who I know you guys have spoken with, was one of them. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, well, we run this other site. Do you want to, you know, review something for us? And I'm like, I could try that because like. I liked being involved with that. I was kind of at that point, like a couple years later, like whittling down my academic career. And I was just like, well, you know, I can do that. Let's see what happens. So I started writing for all things horror for a little while. And then that became one of those things where it's like I was writing for all things horror for a while, got enough links that I liked that I felt like I could approach editors that I wanted to write for. And so like literally like I had all these links from all things horror and I put them in an email and I emailed Dave Alexander who was at um, Roomwork at the time and said like, this is my writing. I'm going to be at Fantasia next month. Can I cover it for you? And he was like, absolutely sounds great. And like, that's honestly how it started. Well, let me ask about that because I think, you know, I, I, I love Boston. Boston's a cool city. Mm-hmm. Boston is not, I think what most people think of as a film city, you know, for being a big city, the, the general impression is that like there are, there are some good festivals that are there. Certainly the Boston Underground Film Festival punches well above its weight when it comes to, to programming and quality. Um, but as somebody who got their start in a city that wasn't a, you know, quote unquote film city, how did you kind of engage with that? Do you feel like, because I know there's a lot of people that are scattered across you know the country in the Midwest or places that are far away from the New York's and LA's. You know, what did you, how were you able to kind of engage with being a, like, not first tier film city, but still being able to watch movies and write about movies and be part of the critical conversation happening about these? Sure. Yeah. I think when I first started, I didn't know that there was a critical conversation happening. Like I wasn't on Twitter. I don't, Twitter was around then, I think. I'm not sure. Um, Mm -hmm. I know we talked about Donato's youthfulness, but that is days of my past. Um, so like I had gone to Fantasia for a couple years even before I asked if I could write for about it for someone just because I wanted to go. I had been reading about it in Remark for forever. And little known fact, Montreal is just a five-hour drive from Boston. So it was just like a long weekend trip with me and my sister. Um, I don't know. Boston, like it's, you, it's funny. So I do full disclosure. I do manage the social media for Buff because I love them and I will never leave them behind. Um, so one of the things All Things Horror did is they not only ran that horror site, they also did screenings, which that was honestly really when I started to encounter really tiny, tiny budget micro cinema sort of stuff. Because I showed up and I was like, what are we showing this week? And it was just like, I'm trying to, they showed like the battery and they showed found, but they also showed the taint, which um, anyway, so it was like, they were just showing this stuff that was not getting distribution. It was not playing a fest anywhere but it was available to them to show in the kind of like 
days before streaming happened instantly after a fest and sometimes there was this time where films just kind of hung out and didn't do anything until they got picked up a couple months later farther down the fest circuit so they showed some of that stuff and that's one of the reasons i got involved with them but yeah i just mostly started out reviewing stuff at fests that i went to um physically showing up there just because like screening links weren't a thing back then um yeah yeah it's funny so like it never occurred to me that Boston like isn't a big film scene because they have buff. There's like IFFB. There's like all these little fests throughout the year. There's a good critics organization there that I was a member of that really like, I'm still friends with almost everyone who's in that group still. Like they still have yet to kick me off of mass emails and I haven't lived in that city in four years. Like, I don't know. It just, I know that the impression is that it's not, but it's like being that close to Montreal, being that close to New York city. And then Boston also being, you know, having the Brattle Theater and the Coolidge Corner Theater, like, it's just, it's a really mm. great place. Like, I saw Serbian film on the big screen. Like, that's not a thing in cities. <laughs> like, so just, I, I guess just based on the programmers having so much heart there, it never even occurred to me that people are like, oh, what's going on in Boston? I'm like, shit ton's going on in Boston. What's going on with you? Come to Boston, where you can see a Serbian film on the big screen. Yeah. Yeah. And let me be perfectly clear here when I say Boston's not a film city. I, I live in Austin, Texas, and oh, yeah. Austin is Austin is not a film city. Like within <laughs> the industry, it's LA and it's New York, right? Like everything else is oh, like, absolutely. it's nice. And when are you going to move? So that's not a knock on Boston at all. It's just, you know, <laughs> I think that there there is a perception, especially among working film critics, that if you really want to do the work, you got to be in LA or you got to be in New York. And really, you should be in LA. And I think that bears out with the amount of moves we've seen over the last year So as many well. people. Yeah, mm -hmm. but it's also like I'm in Chicago now and it's like we have the Music Box Theater, like the Chicago Film Critics Association is incredible. Like all the Ebert writers are here. The AV Club is here. Like the people you actually like run into our screenings are incredible people to like not just know in like a networking way, but know as friends as well. Like, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. If I had to choose a city based on this again, sorry, Austin, but if I had to choose a city based just on the critic community and how much I'd actually probably want to spend time with them, I think Chicago easily wins. We got good people. Well, it was so funny, too, because another one of my Boston critic friends who uh, Isaac Felberg, I don't know if you ran into him oh. out there yet, but like Isaac came from Boston as well. So like he was in Buff. He was he was doing all that stuff uh, or sorry, the Boston Critics Society and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I see him. He's accepted to Chicago. And I was like, oh, wait, did you move? And I just missed that. And he goes, oh, yeah, like I just moved to Chicago. So like, what is it about Boston people where Chicago is the logical next step? <laughs> I know it's such a thing. I actually had... Um met up with Isaac at the music box. He didn't end up coming to the screening, but that was a weekend that Josh Rotato was in town. So it's like, how small is our world? I think they're just following Theo Epstein, right? Boston to <laughs> Chicago. And then wherever he goes after Chicago, they'll go there too. Is that a sports thing? That's a, it's a baseball joke. Donato got it. None of our listeners will. Sometimes we do things that are just for us. Um, okay. So we've got, man, I could talk to you about industry stuff forever, but I don't want to shortchange today's film. So We'll weave some of that talk into our conversation, I'm sure. But when we come back, we're going to talk about Bag Boy, Lover Boy. So stay tuned. Well, hey, thank you for listening to today's episode. And if this is your first episode, this is the part of the show where we let our, our listeners do a little bit of a talk back. So every week we, uh, we've got two little bumpers that we're going to share from our community. Donato, uh, what questions, comments, or concerns are we voicing today? Today, we have our first Patreon comment from Mr. Ian. And Ian has a question, so we're going to have to answer it. And okay. I didn't even have you think of an answer. This is off the cuff, so uh, Mr. Monable, 
and me, I guess. If you could see any band musician live, costs don't matter, flights are paid for, and time travel is available if needed, who would you want to see? So I am, uh, I'm, I'm easy like this because this is, I've had this answer queued up for, for 20 years, um, and hopefully I will be able to do this someday. I would see John Bryan at Largo. Um, Largo is a club in Los Angeles. John Bryan's a f- film composer, singer-songwriter. He did the soundtrack to Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love and a bunch of other things. But he is notorious for having a live show. He used to do it every week or I think once a month at Largo. And over the years, I think that's kind of gone away. Um, but he has a, a live show where he does a lot of improv. He does a lot of mashups on the fly. He takes audience requests. He plays from his own back catalog. He often has a lot of really good vet- guest stars because the Largo community is really big and insular. Um, and I have, my wife bought me tickets to see John Bryan perform with Wordless Music in New York City, which was a live accompaniment of, of a live score accompanying a film. They did Punch Drunk Love, and then afterwards he played at a club in Brooklyn, and we got to see him. But I've always wanted to see him in Largo. So I, when I was in college, I used to download like hours and hours and hours of Largo bootlegs. Like somebody would bring a, a, a you know, a, a MP3 recorder and like set it on their table while the show was going on. I used to be able to like have this collection of them by like day and date. So, yeah, I did not prep for that, but that's not what I needed to prep for. That's quite easy. My answer is, well, I think of who I've seen already and of the bands that I love. Like, I think the big bands here, because the question Ian is saying is, listen, go break all the, break all the rules, see, see who you want to see. So for me, I've already seen the Foo Fighters. I've got that under my belt. I've already seen Rush. I've got that under my belt. Um, I go down the list for some of the smaller bands that I really like. I got to see them, you know, on smaller stages. So I think of seeing a band like <laughs> if anyone's played Guitar Hero or Rock Band, uh, Bang Camaro, which is one of my favorite little indie bands. And seeing them on a... Go ahead, I thought Mark. you were going to say Buckethead. Oh my god, Buckethead. If I got to see... I would love to see Buckethead. But in any case, my answer for this is I want to replicate that little Bang Camaro show in Jersey in a dive bar somewhere where they can barely fill the room. But I want to go back in time and I want to see Metallica because I am a huge Metallica fan, but I want to see them early stages. I want to see them during like the kill them all days when that's them coming out the gate. And I just want to see really young, youthful like Metallica starting out and just playing shows and having that energy that listen, they're a lot older now. They don't have it. They still put on a great show, but I want I want that kill them all Metallica so bad. There you go. That's um, that's basically our personalities in a nutshell, is the bands that we would see and the type of music that they perform. So now you know everything there is to know about both of us. That is, well, I, there's, we have layers. We are onions, to quote the great. We, we don't have that many layers. That, that is actually true. <laughs> Again, we put everything in this podcast where like, we, I, I feel like I've broken a lot of barriers and mm-hmm. really discovered a lot about myself in therapy sessions. So I think the people know more about me than I do. Well, I mean that's what that's what internet forums are for. They can let you know. But let's uh let's address our second bumper too, which I also don't know what it is. Second bumper is a say something nice. That is what I've been told is the second bumper. So it is from Amelia. Amelia runs the Piggity Witch newsletter. It is a newsletter about activism. It is a newsletter about staying up to date on current events. It's also about Marvel gifts. And little fun notes and kind of forgetting about the day and as much as uh, we can find our little ways to help out and help the help our communities and country and everything we can to stay active 
it's also a nice little escape sometimes where <laughs> you can just see the happy thoughts of the day and a little news clipping here and there. So if you're not subscribed already, find the Pickety Witch. It's on Patreon. You can subscribe on review. And then it just goes right into your email. Like, how easy is that? You don't have to do anything. It just shows up and you click on it and then you read it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll second that. Obviously, you know, we're biased. We're big fans of Amelia and her work. But I think that there are the two pieces of that, which is that art is politics. And I think the Pickety Witch does a really good job of kind of bringing those two things together. But I think part of it, too, is that, you know, there there are a lot of different ways for people to get involved, um, whether it's a financial donation, whether it's calling you know, your representative, whether it's just amplifying and supporting artists that are doing good work and good activism in the community. And so with so many different ways you can get involved, sometimes that can just be a little bit overwhelming. And Amelia is here to kind of guide you into the into your first attempts at, at participating in these larger conversations in a way that won't make you feel overwhelmed. Yeah, I think one of my favorite little ways of realizing you can do little things is along with the big things. Or if you can't do the big things, little things matter just as much is someone tweeted a uh, pizza to the polls into my timeline. Mm -hmm. And it just the funny thought that not well, like not even funny, like just the thought that I could spend $20 and spend send three pizzas to a polling line somewhere to entice people to stay and make sure that they're uh, voting you know maybe maybe things weren't going well in some towns we'll say during the actual election and we all know it was happening some places so just that little bit of happiness i can spread through pizza is it it sounds like a crazy thing to say in the grand scheme of things but it's a little piece of activism it's a little piece just to stay involved so that was a nice thing to learn that you can do uh any kind of gesture all right, those are our bumpers. Those, and more importantly, are two members of the Certified Forgotten community. We want to say thank you to both of them for supporting us and allowing us to support them in kind. And on that note, <laughs> let's, let's talk about Bag Boy. We'll see you in a sec. All right, welcome back. So today's film, which certainly falls under the five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes requirement, is Bag Boy Lover Boy. Bag Boy Loverboy is a 2014 comedy horror film. It stars John Wechter as Albert, who is a hot dog cart salesperson, um, a bit of a, a misanthrope, lives alone in a kind of rundown apartment. But he is one day while selling a hot dog that fell off of the grill and onto the floor. He has a, a chance encounter with Ivan, who's played by Theodore Belukas, who is a local photographer of some renown and finds in Albert his muse, the person that's going to make him famous and put him on the map. Albert is interested in modeling for Ivan, but only because he wants to learn how to be a photographer himself. And as he decides how to pursue his photography career and how he decides to engage with people on the streets of New York and ask for his future models, uh, I'm not going to mince words. Some people die. You know, Albert's a, uh, Albert's a very hands-on photographer in, in a lot <laughs> of ways. And he does end up he does end up encountering some young models who he may or may not run through a meek rider. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, I'm sure. Um, but in kind of keeping with the the notion that Didi is the, the champion of all things film festival, this is a uh, film that played pretty much every genre festival, but did get its premiere at Fantasia Fest, five hours north of Boston. And yeah, it is a film that gets comparisons a lot to um, Abel Ferreira's work. Um, it's got more than just a little bit of Bill Lustig in it as well. It's it's kind of a throwback to the 1970s, grimy and dirty and a little bit off-putting um, New York City, City films that were being made in and around Times Square. 
And that's your movie. So let's start, as we always do, by asking our guest, why the heck did you bring this one to us? What was what made this the movie that you knew you wanted to talk about on the show? Okay, so Donato asked me on the show, and I said, how do you even choose the films for this? Because I tried to filter Rotten Tomatoes by based on how many reviews, and I could not. And then mm. he's like, you're going to be surprised. You're going to think of a festival favorite from the past, you know, five years ago or whatever. And you're going to go look at it, and it's going to be barely reviewed. And this is literally the first one that jumped to my mind. And, like, I wrote him back, like, a minute later. I was like, oh, my God, we're doing this. Um, I love this film so much. I love the potential it has to make people very uncomfortable. It's a messy film. There is no heart in this film. It is, it thinks the worst of people and it might be right. Like it is so pessimistic and so beautiful and disgusting and just everything I want to talk about in horror films um, because I feel like there is so much going on here in terms of like societal criticisms and representation and like there are so many different themes running throughout it and I think that's one of the reasons why it is so messy both literally and figuratively that I just kind of love picking it apart. So let's uh, let's start there actually and this feels like a good time to to use one of the quotes that I was going to work in here. Um, the year that the film was released, the director Andre Torres did an interview with Birth, Movies, Death, and he talked a little bit about the response to his film that it was getting at festivals. And I'm just going to read the quote verbatim. We weren't trying to put out a film that teaches you how to treat women. Quite the contrary, actually. These people are awful. Who the hell wants to be like them? Too many people watch genre movies anymore and think because you make a movie about terrible people that you somehow condone that. I don't get that at all. So let's talk a little bit about this, because if you do, if you go out and watch this movie and it's on, it's on Tubi. So like, as so mm -hmm. many of our good movies are, um, it's an opportunity for people to watch it easily and freely, like as soon as this episode drops. So let's talk about that off-putting, misanthropic kind of vibe um, that the film has, because I think before we can talk about anything else, there are going to be people that watch this and just, just hate it, just fucking hate this film. Um, I know because I am struggling with that first watch instinct myself. I'll put my <laughs> hand in the air. I'm having a hard time with this one, but I think that Didi, to the point you said, there's a lot about how this sort of pushes back on audience expectations and the act of watching horror movies and what audiences expect from horror movies. I think there's a lot of rich territory to mine here. So talk about that impression that instinct when you're watching it the you know what you're going to walk away from it talk about audiences hating it and kind of where you think what a good frame is for people sitting down to watch it some kind of a framing device or a mindset they can sit down with that'll kind of unlock the movie for them sure yeah so i think if you watch this film and you're like i hate all of the people very specifically all of the men in this film it's like catcher in the rye do you hate holden if you hate holden caulfield do you hate the book like it's a film about them starring them it's but it's critical of them neither of them even even albert as a character like you there's this inclination initially just because he does seem i don't know which euphemisms i want to use i don't mean it to be unkind like he's a little slow he's a little off because of that we think he's being exploited but then he is but possibly he's actually kind of a terrible person in the middle of that as well of that as well i think that is an argument that can be made so i think I think a lot of the disgust people feel in watching this film are disgust with the situation in it and maybe not the film itself. They might not enjoy spending any time with these characters, but I do think that anytime you have a strong reaction to that, it's like, it's really interesting to be like, well, why do I hate it? Like, does it make me feel judgmental towards myself for what I thought of him initially? Like, does 
like I don't know I keep feeling like my brain is going like a million miles an hour it's like a film can be show sexism without being sexist itself and I feel like this film kind of like teeters on that a little bit and it's uncomfortable and it does make you question like well why is this not a sexist film but it shows sexism or why is this not a a film about maliciousness without being malicious itself or is it like I think that there are a lot of conversations that can arise out of this film because of things like that um it's interesting so the director i was at the screening at fantasia and the director during the q a someone asked like who the hell are we supposed to associate with this in the film like who is your emotional anchor and there isn't one and then Mm -hmm. he just said like well i myself relate to the photographer and i was like oh you're an asshole like and just instantly i was like i do not want to get a drink with this guy afterwards because like in my mind the photographer is the worst of all so He's done a lot of interviews where he talks about the the impetus for this game that he was running or working at a camera rental company. Um, and his engagement with the New York City art scene had kind of like this this is a pure this is a pure labor of unlove, for lack of a better word. He mm-hmm. had encountered so many artists that were so exploitative, exploitative, whatever, um, that he just like he committed all of that anger that he had towards the people that he was encountering professionally as a working artist in New York city into this movie, which is why I think it goes to the point that there isn't super anybody for you to anchor onto because he doesn't like anybody that he's worked with or encountered in the industry too. And so it feels very, I mean, you know, feels very, very Twitter, a bunch of people that hate each other making, (laughs) making art about how much they hate each other. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just like, I mean, it's fascinating because it's the assumption at one point in the film is that Albert learns to use people based on observing Ivan, Mm -hmm. but Ivan doesn't actually kill anyone. So it's like, that's coming from somewhere else. Like whether it's his inability to understand that that's not, that art is not representation, like, or art is not life. Like this is playing killing people and it's playing women dressing up as a pig and having them killed. Um, Which then calls into like, I don't know, like school shootings and stuff like that. It's like, can we then draw the line between art and behavior or things like that? Like this film is just like, it's messy as hell. Like, and when I keep talking about that messiness, I keep talking about the fact that it's in my mind, bringing up all these questions about how we then approach art and how reprehensible and responsible art might be for violence in the world. Cause clearly it has a theory on that, but I really don't know if it's actually making a strong argument one way or the other mostly because Albert is such a hard character to actually figure out where he's coming from. Hmm. And I think that boils down to the fact that this entire movie is about everyone using each other and not giving a shit about the consequences. Uh, Cause it is very obvious that Ivan is using Albert as his quote unquote muse, but he's using Albert because of his looks, because of his quote unquote, like freakish nature, because he looks like someone who is just a stock boy and does not belong next to this beautiful model that he's also cast. So mm-hmm. Ivan is exploiting the hell out of this person. And again, Didi, to your point, you know, you don't want to use certain words, but like a slower person, someone who's not catching on because I will Albert then will bring in the fact that he's exploiting Ivan and he thinks he's getting over on Ivan because he thinks he's going to get tutored. Basically, he's the protege and he is taking all of these behaviors that he thinks Ivan would take to the next level, but he's doing that himself. And I think that's where you get the commentary on, well, does art really influence behavior? How does this work? Like Ivan in no point to, as you've said, murders anyone. That is that is all Albert. That is all Albert's doing. And that is all Albert going to another degree and doing that all on his own. Like there was no reason to do that, but he did that because it's in programmed in his head. 
and you get both of those warring factions and you get both of those warring ideas and i don't know if they answer either of those i don't think there is a culmination of either arc but then you introduce other characters uh like the quote-unquote love interest who is just clearly using albert for free hot dogs and a place to stay and that's where it gets the most interesting to me because this is almost an indictment of just like new york itself and like living in brooklyn for seven years and like dealing with certain types of people and creatives and things of that nature uh yeah you feel a lot of the hate that torres has for that industry you feel all of the hate for that entire ecosystem that thrives and you sit there and you go well can these people really exist in new york city of all places it's the same it's the maniac uh you know we talk about bill lustig it's maniac all over again like how can maniac happen in in such a populated area like new york city well that's because everyone's up with their own ass and they only care about themselves. You can get away with anything in New York City and no one would pay attention. So it, it just becomes this real interesting series of points that I don't think ever have a point in the end of the film. Yeah, yeah. And I think like, I mean, we keep bringing up the fact that Albert like wanted to be taught photography, but the only reason that we see that his interest in photography is because that girl he likes starts flirting with a customer in front of him by asking him about his camera. So it's mm -hmm. like, she could have asked him about a field hockey stick and Albert would try and learn field hockey. Like, or at least that's my assumption based on watching that scene. Like he just, he does not seem interested to do, be able to do anything except for be able to take a picture that would then fool her into coming back with him. Like, yeah. And in terms of like, I don't know, could this possibly happen in New York? Where else could this happen? But New York, like right. why, of course this is going to happen in New York. Like, yeah and in terms of like judgment in the end like that's the thing it's like the rich white fat guy who kind of caused all of this though not exclusively because i do think that there's some premeditated stuff there no consequences and he has like a thriving art career he's probably going to get mm -hmm. some like good money off of albert's photos now that the guy's a killer like yeah like is that I don't think he's saying that's a good thing, though. It's just like, just because the bad guy wins, you know, even though everyone's a bad guy, it doesn't mean it's a good, it doesn't mean that the film is then giving judgment onto this as being a positive outcome. It just is the outcome and we don't like it. Yeah, I, I think the question becomes kind of, can you, and I'm, I'm not saying you can or can't. I, I, I'm just posing the question of, can you create a piece of art uh, basically rooted in hate and have that show in a way that still has value to some people? Because it, it, it just... To say what Monagle said, to say what Didi said, uh, a lot of people are not going to like this movie, and you'll probably realize that within the first 10 minutes. Uh, but also, as a New Yorker, this, the, the grossest thing to me was the hot dog. <laughs> like, I've watched a bunch yeah. of horror movies. I, I could deal with most things. Uh, the hot dog thing and just Albert saying, oh, no, that's for tomorrow. Like, he drops it on the dirty-ass steel grate floor of that nasty, nasty cart. And then he just puts it back on the grill, like, I will serve it somewhere tomorrow. Fuck that. <laughs> That's the grossest thing to me. All right. Donata, legitimate question, though, as you and I both lived in New York for a long time. Did you ever order a hot dog from a hot dog cart? I never did. I, was I never not did a either. I would, get, I would get muffins and like bagels and stuff from those carts 24, like all day long, every day, but never once ordered any kind of heated meat for lack of a better phrase <laughs> um maybe the halal cart the halal cart was the only place all right that's fair yeah it's it's interesting as we're talking about this kind of what i'm um 
it, it feels like the almost like the horror equivalent of the why I left New York letters, right? Because like there was a especially a period in the mid 2010s where it seems like every week there was another vulture or New Yorker essay that somebody wrote about like here's why I'm leaving New York. And I think that this is this kind of has that vibe, like to the point that the the Torres you know, he's, I could quote from a thousand interviews where he basically talks about how much he hated every person he met and the industry and hated the city. It does have that kind of like, fuck New York, I'm out kind of vibe that that I think will play up to people who have, who have moved in those circles, who spent time on the East Coast or the West Coast, but no, like trying to navigate creative spaces with people that are like, oh, I'm like one thing away from my big break and you help me out and I'll scratch your back. Like it's, I thankfully have never, I, I, I don't, I've never known a lot of filmmakers um, kind of because I, I had no interest in knowing a lot of filmmakers. So I don't, I'm not privy to a lot of those conversations that I know frustrate folks, but the, the desire to not be in the, in the industry that you're in, in this film is palpable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one thing we haven't touched on that I definitely want to talk about, um, is just, it's gritty. It's gross. There's a lot of meat cooking. And like, as a vegetarian, I just always feel like it's, okay, I made the right decision. Like every time you see anyone eating anything in this film. Um, But some of the visuals are just so polished and decadent and like indulgent, like especially when he's like dancing or the actual photo shoots themselves. Like I think that there is also that element, like I don't want to say high art, but there is that element of it's not all gritty there is certain amounts of glamour and you can see how that would be seductive even though when i actually look at the photo shoots specifically it's like oh no this is actually horrifying but they're all well lit there's beautiful women in lingerie like that's got to be great like yeah i just think the contrast between the two worlds and albert's inability to actually filter what's happening there or at least that's what it seems to us is just so i keep using the word but like complicated like well, and I mean, not to bring in current events uh, and well, I, I don't know. I'm just going to say it out loud, like dash cam. Uh, if we're talking about this whole thing about like separating the art from the artist or, you know, having an exploitation commentary and pushing something to a certain bound, uh, I think is there, or, you know, is exploitation cinema just immediately bad? No, I, I think a lot of exploitation cinema is very good. And I think that when exploitation cinema is done right, with the right intentions and the right understanding of what makes something exploitative versus just platforming bad ideas. Uh, there's a big difference because, you know, what you see in something like bad boy, lover boy is obviously not rooted in reality is obviously a grotesque take on something that might exist. And this is the art critique. This is the New York city critique, but it's taken to such a level that it is not anywhere realistic where if we're going to talk about something like dash cam and i have not seen it yet all i have read are the reviews but i've read enough reviews and know enough to say like the problem becomes when you just can't separate the art from the artist and the problem becomes when the main character of the film is named the same thing and then you go on her twitter profile in real life and she is saying the same things that her reprehensible character is saying it's like well that's when you can kind of draw a problem and i, and I don't think bag boy lover boy ever gets to that level I, I think everything it's doing is coming from that actual exploitative place and listen again it's not going to be for everybody because there are some things done particularly to women that are not good just not good very gross scene stuff that like some people probably can't watch but it is done with exploitation it is done in that sense so I, it just becomes the, that entire conundrum of well fuck <laughs> 
Yeah, and it's like if this film were made by Herschel Gordon Lewis back in his heyday, would everyone love it because we would have the distance to be able to look at it? But it's like a moderately contemporary film that is both an exploitation film and about exploitation. Again, like I, I mean, I hate to be doing this to you guys, but like I love how uncomfortable it makes people because I do think that conversations come out of it. Um, yeah, and I even remember watching it recently. I was just like oh no what did I do to these guys like this is not for everybody this is not the kind of film you watch and you're like hey this is good fun I'm gonna show it to my friends next week like that's not this film well I like to think one of the things that makes this show fun for us as hosts and hopefully for the people that are listening is that because everybody's bringing in something that they're passionate about we run the gamut right like we have had what are my kind of like slow burn folksy grief kind of field stuff we've had Donato's like more over the top splatter but we've had I mean, we've had Ted Gagan come on with uh, Zombie Ass. Mm-hmm. We had Matt Barone come on with, um, can't remember the name of the film, but the um, like... Three Deaths or Little Deaths, whatever that was. Little Deaths, yeah, something like that. So like, which is a lot of psychosexual violence. You know, we have something like this, which is steeped in like 1970s exploitation. Um, but the thing is, is that there's, you know, you can find you can find folks that are, that are not... To me, one of the biggest misnomers about horror fans is that people are engaging with this kind of content uncritically. And that, you know, it's like the, you know, if you've ever been to a late night movie theater and heard everybody hoot and holler at a, at a midnight screening, you kind of think like, oh, so this is the audience for the film. And like, no, the audience for the film is people like you, Dee, who are like, what does this say about our relationship to art? What is the difference between art and artists? Like, how do we unpack this? And I, it's just, it's, it's a reminder that there is an audience for every film and more so not an uncritical audience. There's an audience who's going to really dig into it and find reasons to like it and find reasons to defend it, you know, on, on in a venue where, yeah, sure. You're over beers and talking to friends, but also like go to bat. Like you could, doesn't not even a question in my mind that you could go present a paper on this somewhere tomorrow if you needed to, and just be like, let's go, let's fucking go. This is, this is my movie. Let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just as you're talking about that, I'm like, can we talk about the way that the women's bodies are shot in the least sexy way possible, which supports my theory that it's it's about sex, but it's not sexy. Like, or in like, at least in my mind, like if you compare it to any other film where women actually are being like super exploited without that layer of criticism of it, like none of these, these gorgeous women are in bikinis and, you know, gorgeous lingerie and I'm not turned on for a second. Like, mm-hmm. so yeah, I don't know. There's so much, I w- yeah, I can keep going on. I'd love to. God, what was the um, what was the Elle Fanning film from a few years ago? Neon um, Demon. Neon Demon. Neon Demon. It would be a fascinating. I would love to see somebody com- like write a comparison piece between Bag Boy, Lover Boy, and Neon Demon, and the way right. that to to your point, like the the non sexualization versus the sexualization of women. Like, I'm not going to say that I'm going to read that piece and come out feeling differently about either movie, but I think that there there's there's definitely a there there in terms of like sexuality because this is a Bag Boy Lover Boy is about like softcore pornography. It's about a like a photographer who is working in softcore. There's nothing. There's nothing sexy about this movie. There are. There are. You're not going to watch. It. Like it's just every scene that is supposed to be titillating is just deeply uncomfortable. And the more the 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 more that they angle towards nudity, the more you're like, oh no, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Especially when Albert like brings his full, first model home and she kind of like keeps pulling up her shirt and it's just like, oh no, no, no. This is someone who needs someone to take care of them for a little bit until they get their feet under them um it's you know in a way it's like the maniac remake except you swap elijah wood who is actually charming and able to bring home his victims with somebody else who cannot and it just becomes all the more awkward and like the dance that they have is 
none of it is quote unquote like beguiling or entertaining. It is just in your face, but also unfortunate because of some of the people like, you know, he does bring home and some of the people that like do go with him because it's, it's their option to make a little money. And again, what does that say about the art scene where it's so easy just to flaunt your fake credentials and fucking Polaroid camera and pretend that you are a legitimate photographer? Let me ask about um, the New York setting on this, because I think, you know, in, in that same interview, um, the director Torres said that, you know, we were not trying to make a film that resembled something from another age. We keep getting compared to Abel Ferrara, and that's nice, but we did not intentionally do that. So kind of the idea that a lot of people watch this movie and they said, oh, it's Ferrara, it's Lustig, it's 70s exploitation cinema, it's like steeped in that. He's gone out of his way in the interviews that I read, at least, to be like, that wasn't on our mind at all. We were just trying to make New York as ugly as possible. So I'm I'm curious though, you know, people that are watching this and making those connections, how do we feel about sort of that 70s, a contemporary version of that 70s vibe of film? Do we feel, because I was kind of, Donato and I were actually talking about this before the show and the fact that like when you operate in the mode of like 70s exploitation, so much of our appreciation of that and our understanding of that comes from a historiographical context of going back and understanding where the industry was, who was making movies and why, and what New York was in the 1970s. So to make that in a, you know, post 9-11, super duper safe New York City, like a highly capitalist and commercialized city, it, it it's a weird disconnect for me that I kept being like, can we can we make New York exploitative again? Does it work in a modern setting? And I don't really have a great answer for that. So I'm just going to ask the two of you and you're going to say smart things. Didi, you go first. I think, at least for me, the major difference here is that even though we keep talking about how New York this film is and how there's no, you know, of course it takes place in New York. New York never feels like a character in this film. Like there's not a lot visually Mm -hmm. to do to set up New York as like, here we are. It's just kind of like the first thing you see, it's like Albert and his hot dog truck. And like, it's very clearly New York because that is something that is very clearly associated with New York and just has things go when you meet more characters. It's very New York and you hear the accents, but like, there's not a lot of like setting the scene and like give it going to other buildings and like putting it within that mm-hmm. context. And in terms of like, is New York is very clearly much safer than it was in the seventies or, you know, the 1870s or whatever. Um, but it's not safe for everybody. Like it's not safe for these mm-hmm. women in this film. It's not safe for a lot of other you know subcultures or parts of um different demographics so i think that that yeah it's safer but it's never going to be completely safe i think as long as there is the art scene (laughs) like i think that's basically the condemnation here is that as long as people who say hey i'm a photographer carry this power and people are willing to cede to it like that's the issue more it's not the new yorkness of it it's just Mm -hmm. And you're right. The New Yorkness of it manifests not in location, but in, I think, the community, mm-hmm. right? Like, I buy New Yorkers coming across somebody on the street, and they're like, hey, let's go do a photo shoot. And they're like, oh, my big break, as opposed to like, oh, no, get away from me. So it is the 70s element of that for me is more just the 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 lack of stranger danger, I think, that a lot of these folks have for each mm-hmm. other, which is, um, uh, you know, doesn't really pay off well for a lot of them. But yeah, I mean, the most New York thing that you get is one i think probably the most new york quintessential new york shot that i can think of is the one where they go off on the balcony um during the first polaroid shoot you see like whatever it is madison avenue or in the background that's about it that's about as like quintessential new york picturesque as you're going to get in the film let me yeah there's that one finance bro sorry there is that one finance bro who's kind of a dick and i'm like well that's very new york. <laughs> that's wall street like 
no i was gonna say too but you know it is very new york in a way that you can still get away with that stuff and you know monocle we both kind of live there and you know i lived there as a bunch of two years ago and safety has absolutely gone up safety has <laughs> definitely become a thing that is a fixture uh but when you operate in certain hours in new york in certain places and we're getting out of manhattan we're going into worse areas uh still not great still a lot of work to do still a lot of areas for exploitation and areas for uh the nastiness that occurs in this film and you know is that because like I, I in some ways like participated in just getting like belligerently drunk and like walking around new york city and just like i know somebody could have easily mugged me like i crossed my fingers that to this day uh, i did very well surviving new york <laughs> let's put it that way and i guess that is a testament to how much better things have gotten but it is also a testament to the way that a lot of things still operate and in a way that a lot of people can still take advantage of it and they do um and so i i think you can still operate in that exploitation mode and you can still operate in that world and make those kind of films because human nature is never going to change uh the things around it and, and the scenery and all that stuff can change but is that just surface value and i think there still is uh something to be said in films uh to that surface value nature and the things that we preach and fuck i mean if you want to talk about social media and twitter how fake is half the shit on there and then you like get behind the curtain yeah i think also to that effect like all of the bad shit that happens in this happens in the fancy place mm. like this is not like the wealth disparity if anything between albert and ivan is kind of what and the perceived power disparity there is if anything what eventually leads to some of the actual violence and death and maiming and all that stuff like i think it, this is not showing like the horrible underbelly of new york it's anything it like i keep coming back to this like it's a condemnation of the people who are in power and of the wealthy like albert's got this like, horrible apartment like honestly like it's not anything to write home about but like he doesn't kill anybody in there he just eats his hot dogs and looks at porn like that doesn't sound too bad like we've all been there um you know, I don't know. Listen, audience at home, I don't know if we're making it any more clear for you whether or not you should watch this movie. But I will say that <laughs> that inevitably the movies that I watch and feel like I'm going to really struggle with having a good conversation about end up being the ones we have the best conversations about. So if nothing else, you can take that away. And I that mean, brings us. Well, oh, go, say, no, like, go ahead. Yeah. When I, tweet, I, I didn't get a lot of reactions when I tweeted out that I was watching it, but immediately someone responded saying they, that oh my God, like no one talks about this movie, like so excited to see whatever's going to happen through this. And then, you know, Brad Henderson, who is kind of becoming, not becoming, he is, he's like one of the bastions of independent underseen horror movies because literally he works at distributing them. He's the one that tries to right all these wrongs, immediately jumped in and was like, I fucking love this movie and like even recommended another film to go along with it. So I, it has its audience. It absolutely has mm -hmm. an audience and, you know, I think, you know, Dee Dee brought it. Like, there's a reason Dee Dee brought it and Dee Dee brought it with love. So I, I want to say like, we're, I think we're pretty split here. I, I don't think there's a outright confusion. And if any of this stuff sounds vaguely intriguing, uh, because I think even using entertaining or, uh, you know, any of those words is a stretch, but that's sometimes not why we watch movies. And that's sometimes to have those conversations. So I, I think it does fit right there. And now we can get to the, actual question of how does a movie like this find a mass audience <laughs> yeah so that's you know sometimes we ask this question and it's easier than others um this feels like a hard one for me 
you brought up Brad Henderson. This does have distribution. This does have a really good, it's on Severn Films, which means it has a really good boutique label that is taking care of this. So unlike a lot of films that we talk about on the show, this has already seen the love befitting a quality home video release. Um, but the question, Didi, that I'm going to pose to you that we always ask is the last question on the show is, how does this movie find a bigger audience? We, we don't even need to say a mass audience that we'll just say a bigger audience. And is there even a bigger audience for this film? Or do you think that it kind of where it is, is, is where it's always going to exist? The sort of thing where a few people love it passionately and everybody else has either not heard of it or never thinks of it again. Um, I hope it finds a few more people. I don't think everyone's going to love this film. I would love to read other people's critical takes on it. So I have this little like hope that I'm holding out that I get to read other people's opinions on it. Cause I've been listening to my own for five years. Um, seven years my god um yeah i think that because in my reading of the film that there is so much rich going on there i could see this possibly like in a couple years should the director go on to make something else incredible and he get over his hatred towards all people in the art industry um i think it would be interesting for people to go back and rediscover it in that light that's just purely hypothetical, though. But, like, it's free on Tubi. What more do you want, people? Yeah. I mean, the fact that is that there's a million other things that are free on Tubi that don't look like they're going to make you upset after watching them. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't see this is not something that there's going to be a midnight showing of as a repertoire theater in a repertoire theater in 20 years. That's just not the case. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. I think if it was more, I'm always surprised considering, like, you guys, like, if you look at IMDb, like, how many times did this film play and how many different festivals? All of them. And, and all of them. All of them. All of them. It was so incredible. And it had this really great run. And then just to see it not go anywhere based on that, like, even amongst us horror nerds, like, you'd think there'd be more of a current there. Like, there's plenty of other films that kind of sit in this space that, like, not to be like, oh, you know, those in the no, no. But like, we we actually are physically in the same space, usually a couple times a year watching all the same mm-hmm. films. Like, yeah. You know, I'll end my my contribution to that by just, it's, I, I feel like I this happens like every other episode, but there's a reason for it. You know, my criteria for a movie that deserves to, to be remembered is whether or not somebody can write a really kick-ass college paper about it. And I think that however I may feel about Bad Boy Loverboy, which is complicated at best and other stuff at worst, can you write a fil- write a paper about this film that contrasts it with The Neon Demon? Can you write a paper about this film which contrasts it with Joker? Can you write a paper about this film that contrasts it to 1970s exploitation cinema? Absolutely. There are comparisons to be made. There are threads to pull on. There are ways to use this film as a framing device to better understand more popular or more visible films. Um, I think that it can have critical legs. And I think that probably somewhere somebody already has written a really kick-ass college essay, college term paper um, that kind of views, catalogs the modern New York or the historical New York through film and uses this as one of their touch points. So as long as it has that kind of relevance, as long as there are people that are going to be passionate about it and continue to give it, you know, the the old college try, I'm I'm glad that it exists and I'm glad that it exists in a format that won't be you know, bad YouTube rips as so many of, of unfortunately these movies end up being. Mm-hmm. That is it. That's our show. Bag boy, lover boy. You were going to watch this movie and um, you know, we don't actually, we never say this, but I think for this one, I'm going to say it. Let us know what you thought. Please actually watch it. <laughs> tweet at us, tweet at DD, tweet at certified forgotten. We want to know what you thought of this movie because this is, I ended up being 
one of my favorite conversations about a movie that I was like, I was texting it out before the recording. I was like, you're going to have to carry me on this one, man. I don't even know what I'm going to say. And yet here we are. <laughs> and I think, I think that's a credit yeah, he, to our guest, Didi. I think that's a credit to you and the perspective that you brought. Thank you. Thank you. He did warn me. He's like, I don't think he likes it. I'm like, yay. <laughs> that's what you wanted anyways. Well, all right. So if, if people want to learn more about the writing that you're doing, if they want to, if they want to read when you actually write about the next bag boy, lover boy, the next festival film that, that gets you excited and makes you want to share it with folks, what are some good places on social media, websites, things of that nature they can follow you on? Sure. Um, as mentioned, I am on Rotten Tomatoes. So if you look up Bag Boy, Lover Boy, I'm one of three reviews and you can find me there very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, I do tweet out links to all of my Twitter stuff and um, or all of my um, reviews and stuff like that on Twitter. So that's my handle is ddcrim. That's D-E-D-E-C-R-I-M. Um, yeah, that's probably the easiest way to find me. And there's links to everything that I write for there. Awesome. Donato, promote thyself. You can read my writing and other stuff at Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. That is where I'll be posting everything. You will be seeing everything from my remake column on Blade Disgusting to my reviews on What to Watch to my scariest scene ever column on Slash Film and whatever the hell else I decide to waste my time on instead of sleeping. So follow along. Let's see what happens. Nice. As for myself, you know, I'm not as I'm not as prolific as my co-host or our esteemed guest today, but I'm around. I'm around in a mount. And you can follow my stuff by following me on Twitter as well at, at Matt Monagle, M-O-N-A-G-L-E. And I would also encourage you, very strongly encourage you to check out certifiedforgotten.com. Check out some of the film criticism that we're publishing over there. We have some really good writers with some really good pieces. There's a piece on Absentia by a um, friend of the show, Jen Adams, that I really think you should check out that we published late last week or early this week. I, what, I don't even know what month it is. But yeah, um, do check it out. Do support. And as always, if you like something, click on something, share something. That's the way that the the film criticism economy goes. And every time you like something enough to tell the author or to share it on social media, you might think it's a drop in the bucket, but it really, it really does help. And it really does keep people encouraged as they're going through their day to day. All right, Didi. Well, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll definitely have you back. It sounds to me like you probably have a lexicon, um, despite your initial misgivings of films that would qualify. So we'll have you on an episode again, pretty soon, pretty soon. I'm sure. Please. This was great. Thank you so much. I'll be back.